But this morning, we conclude our thoughts on the Daniel dilemma and how Daniel brought grace and truth into a foreign culture. Indeed, exactly the same as Jesus had done. And and the dilemma is dealing with the tension. And we're going to talk a lot about that this morning. But um, John, one of the disciples of Jesus, is getting on in life. Uh, John is the only disciple, from what we can understand, who's still alive. And those who no doubt would have listened to him tell the stories of walking with the Savior, of being there as uh, Jesus performed the most incredible miracles, as Jesus communicated the most life-changing truth. And, and, and they would have, you would have just been amazed, naturally, after you had a first-hand account. They would have hung on every word he said. And so they said to him, John, you've got to write this down. And so he starts to write down what it was. And, and he says this in John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 14. He says, and the word, what a funny thing to say, and the word. I mean, seriously, the word, this is God. Why do we define God as the word? And yet he does. Words communicate uh, identity. Uh, we understand that the world was created when the word went forth. You know, God spoke the world into existence, the word. What an amazing uh, way to identify Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John and his mates, he, uh, he, he walked with us, he ate with us. We, we lived together. We dwelt amongst us. And he says, and we beheld his glory. We saw something that I wish I could communicate. I saw something that, that I can only define as glory. But, but glory, what does that mean? We beheld his glory. What do you mean by that, John? He must have written it. What does that actually say? And so then he goes on and says, the only begotten of the Father, full, and here's our, here's our, uh, our phrase, full of grace and truth. Let's all say together, full of grace and truth. Now, I want you to know something here. It's not the balance of grace and truth, right? So it's not just the right balance. It's the embodiment of grace and truth. He's 100% grace and he's 100% truth. Now, this seems a paradox. It's an oxymoron. One says, truth says you're accountable. Uh, grace says, nah, it's gonna be okay. Uh, grace says, you can work it out. Truth says, nah, you've actually got to work on it. He wasn't the balance of this grace and truth thing. He was, the, he, he was the complete and utter embodiment of it. And of course, the question that we're wrestling with is, does the world get grace and truth from the church? Do you get grace and truth in your life? Some of you might have grown up in an environment with, I don't know, let's say Mr. Grace and Mrs. Truth, or was it the other way around? <laughs> Maybe in your, in your house it was, um, you know, Mr. Truth and Mrs. Grace. That's unusual, but maybe that was the case. <laughs> and, and you probably had a, you know, you probably had a bit of a leaning one way or the other, because most of us do. Most of us are either truthers or graces. Most of us kind of think, oh, no, this is the truth, you know. We've got to know the truth. Other people are a bit more focused on individuals. They go, well, you know, we've got to appreciate people. We've got to give them a bit of a... We've got to give them a bit of, bit of a chance. Jesus embodied both, and it was messy. We're going to see how messy it was. I, I, you could have been disillusioned following Jesus. 
there's many people get disillusioned following Jesus. We're about to see why. Because the dilemma of grace and truth, you cannot figure out. You, you can't kind of go, well, that's it. I, I get it. It's okay. At times he was harsh. At times he was forgiving. There's a tension here and you can't solve the tension. Do, do individuals fall one way or the other? The answer is yes. But of course, so do churches. You know, some churches, it's kind of like God loves you, but he doesn't really like you. <laughs> You need to get yourself together so God can actually like you. And there are other churches that's kind of like, well, you know, anything goes as long as you're here and, you know, we don't want to upset you. We don't want to offend you. So just come on the journey. We'll do everything in our power to be fair, everything in our power to kind of be okay in your eyes. And Jesus offended people. And Jesus was gracious to people. Imagine, if you will, uh, we're coming into the Easter week in a very short space of time. Imagine that you're in the um, audience, right, in, in the crowd watching Jesus get crucified. And, and imagine with me, if you will, that uh, you're there supporting a relative of yours, a victim of crime. Because the two guys getting crucified on the other side of Jesus, they're criminals, right? They're, they are, they're scum, they're lowlife, uh, the Roman authorities didn't crucify just any criminal. These guys weren't fit to work in Roman salt mines or, or work as slaves rowing uh, the galleons or whatever. Uh, these guys ha had performed most probably heinous, violent crimes where they could not uh, be allowed to live. And there they are being crucified, getting their just desserts, their comeuppance, right? They're getting what's right and justice is being done now you're there with your relative who is a victim of one of their crimes and they've gone along as opposite going along watch that and go yeah well that's what you get for you know interfering with me that's what you get you know justice is being served here this is a good day this is making this is helping me come to grips with how i've been hurt through the crime and, and as you're watching this right this one the guy on the side of jesus says a couple of things and, and Jesus turns to him and says today you'll be with me in heaven and, and, and you're, you're, with, you're, you're with your friend who's a victim of crime right? and you are just boiling with anger because you got it together right you're, in fact you're quite a wealthy young man <laughs> in fact you went to Jesus yourself and you said Jesus what have I got to do to get eternal life and he told you, you had to sell everything that you owned and give it to the poor. And you've spent all your life doing the right thing. You've spent all your life trying to keep the golden rule, trying to be an upstanding citizen, standing against temptation. And then Jesus has told you, you want eternal life? Fine, then sell everything you own and give it to the poor. And here is this criminal this dropkick who's offended my friend and Jesus says you're in how do you feel are you cranky are you disillusioned with Jesus are you thinking this isn't right this isn't fair is it well if you're looking for fair don't come to Jesus because he ain't fair and if you're looking for fair, you're in the wrong church because fair never works with grace and truth. <laughs> That's the dilemma. 
That's the tension. See, Jesus says to Peter in one minute, oh, wow, Peter, what you just said was so cool. <laughs> I mean, you're on the money, Peter. In fact, Peter, you know what? I reckon that's going to be the foundation. I reckon you're going to be the foundation of this whole new order we're going to call the church, this new thing. Peter, you're amazing. A few minutes later, Peter, you're Satan. <laughs> How do you go? <laughs> Jesus just called you Satan. <laughs> like a minute ago, I was, now I'm, <laughs> what's that? How many know it would have been messy to hang around Jesus? It would have been difficult because he was the embodiment of grace and truth. And the embodiment of grace and truth tends to have this tension with it that we hate. We hate tension, right? We want to solve tension. We want tension to go away. We don't like living with tension. I made a statement on, on um, Vision Sunday, and we're going to get to it in a minute, about the woman caught in adultery and how Jesus dealt with that. And I got to the point when I'm about to tell you how Jesus dealt with that and how important it is. And then I said, I'll tell you later. And everyone went, oh, the reason that happened is because people, you want to solve the tension. I don't want to live with the tension. Now, most of you probably have forgotten about that. You haven't carried the tension over a month later. I understand that. <laughs> so I'll introduce you to the story once again. A bunch of men find this woman in the act of adultery, right? And, and they drag her from the adulterous bed virtually. And they bring her before Jesus, who happens to be in the temple at the time. And they, they, they say to Jesus, Jesus, this woman's been called an adultery. Jesus you are the embodiment of truth. Jesus, you are complete and utter righteousness and holiness. You know what Moses says. This woman should be stoned. This woman should die. And what happens? We want to know what you say, Jesus. What are you saying? Is adultery okay now? What are you saying? You know, we go easy on it. What's, what's, what's the go, Jesus? And of course, they're setting him up, right? They want to catch him out. And, and, and I made the comment a, f a few weeks ago, the world wants to know, what, what do you say, Christian church? What do you say about um, same-sex marriage? What do you say? What do you say about abortion? What do you say? What do you say about gender uh, fluidity? What do you say? Where do we stand on these issues? Give us some clarity here. We don't want to live in tension. We want some clarity. And what does Jesus do? Man, what he does, it just blows us away. He, he looks at them and he, I tell you what he doesn't do first. He doesn't, right? He doesn't say, come on, guys, have some compassion on this dear soul. This woman was, was deserted by her dad when she was just small. Then what happened was she got married and he was just an absolute you know, animal. He betrayed her and she fell out of that relationship into another uh, abusive relationship. And this, this soul is just looking, you know, for some sense of, uh, uh, of peace, someone to belong to, and she winds up in the bed with this bloke. Have some compassion on her. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't explain sin. He doesn't explain it away and say, listen, we've got to understand. There, 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 it's okay. He doesn't say that. Neither, however, does he launch into a three-point dissertation on the vagrances of random sexual liaison and its dangers. 
right? He doesn't say, you know, when you go sleeping around with people, you've got to be careful, you know, <laughs> you might catch disease, you've got to be, you know, it hurts families, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't talk about the, 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 the consequences of her sin and somehow seek to condemn her uh, even more. Basically, he agrees. Yeah, you're right. She is. She has. She has sinned. She is guilty. And so he makes this profoundly uh, interesting reply. He says, I'll tell you what, we're going to stone her to death. And uh, everyone pick up a stone, and on the count of three, we'll start throwing them. And the first person to throw, that'll be the one who has never committed any sin. And he crouches over, and he starts to write in the dust. Now, no one knows what he was writing, right? But it's interesting, isn't it? You know? Some people reckon, oh, I don't mind the idea. Some people reckon he was writing the names of some of their misdemeanors. <laughs> he writes this woman's name and he looks at the guy who he knows was with her. <laughs> and he writes another woman's name. He looks up at the other black. <laughs> now, that's, we don't know that to be true. But we know he started writing something in the dust. And, uh, and all the people watching, they start to, to dissipate start to walk away and then Jesus looks at the woman and, the, and he says where, where are those that condemn you and she doesn't say well I shouldn't be condemned because I'm not that bad this was my first time <laughs> he, he doesn't say I shouldn't be she didn't say I shouldn't be condemned we were going to get married anyway <laughs> she, she doesn't say that she acknowledges yeah I'm a sinner but uh, she draws to the fact that hey they've all gone they're not here no, no one condemns me. Then Jesus does something that he does to every one of us. When you acknowledge your sin, he looks you in the eyes and he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Grace and truth. Grace, I don't condemn you. Truth, go and sin no more. He brings grace and truth to the life of this woman. Now, I want you to note what he didn't do. Remember I said a few things he didn't do? He didn't make public statements. <laughs> he didn't rail against, you know, uh, the evils of, of um, sleeping around. Uh, you know, we better make an, a display of this woman. Jesus never makes a display of people. He never makes examples. And we need to make an example of this woman, you know. Or before you know it, all the women will be committing adultery. This is dreadful, you know. <laughs> We're going to stop the curse. No, 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 no. He doesn't make public display he doesn't belittle or demean anybody it's not his way in fact this is this is the this is the you've got to get this in your head right i've said all that to say this this is what you do because i know this is what i do what we have a tendency to do is to lower the standard and lessen the grace right because that reduces the tension lower the standard lessen the grace for example right i told you 10 o'clock Rook, be home by 10, right? Ever <laughs> she I can't get home by 10. I can't get home by 10. All right, 10.30, but not a minute later or else. So what we do is we lower the standard, right? That's really hard. I can't keep that. Okay, look, it's a bit harsh. I understand that's a bit hard, you know, circumstances, got to think. So I tell you what, we'll move the boundary there. <laughs> Make it a bit easier for you. But don't you dare cross it. You cross that boundary and I'm coming after you. You cross that boundary and you're going to pay the price. And that's what we do. 
Right? We, we, we wanna, we, what we want to do is we want to increase the cost of, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the penalty for crime. But there's a whole bunch of stuff we want to decriminalize. And that's what our society does. Let's decriminalize this. Let's decriminalize that. Let's decriminalize this. But for the real criminals, let's set them away forever. That's how we work. Well, how does Jesus work? Uh, Moses said committing adultery is out. We all get that. But Jesus said, I say to you, if you've looked onto a woman and you've lusted in your heart, that's committing adultery. That's out too. And when he said that, he just made an adulterer of every man listening to him. So every man is now an adulterer. And they must be thinking to themselves, well, what now? I'm an adulterer. What now? You're going to stone us, Jesus? That's what Moses said. You woman, you know, adultery, stone them. Is that the deal now, Jesus? Are you going to stone us? What does he do? Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to stone you. I'm going to die for you. Look what he does. You ready for this? What he does is the opposite to what we do. He increases the standard and he deepens the grace. Did you see that? He increases the... See, what we continue to do is reduce the standard, reduce the standard, reduce the standard. But listen to grace, listen to grace, listen to grace. You know why you want to do that? Because it makes you feel better. Because we love little boxes. Uh, Pastor Mark made the statement on the first uh, first week after Vision Sunday on this subject. He said, "You know, he said we we, we nail the wrong things. You know, some things you got to let go, some things you got to nail. And you know what you will want? You will want a list of those things. <laughs> well, what do we got? What's what do we give grace and where do we give truth? How does that work? Give me some clear perspective. Give me a list because I love lists. If I had a list, I could be confident. I can, you know, I, I'm I'm cool with a list." What can I be hard on and what have I got to be soft on? And here's the dilemma. There ain't no list. You have to live with the tension of it. The, book, the Bible's full of tensions, just incidentally. Tensions that can't be solved. Things like this, you know. Is it whosoever will may come, man's volition, or is it chosen from the foundations of the earth? Is it the sovereignty of God? Which is it? Do I choose to come to God or does God choose me to come to him? Which is it? They're both in the Bible. I just suggest to you that both are right. There's a tension there, right? And and, and interestingly, stay with me here because this is an interesting fact. Every church that's ever solved that tension has lost its power. You do some church history and every church that comes up on either one side of that continuum or the other disappears into oblivion. Because we don't like living in the tension. But Jesus seemed to be perfectly okay with it. Jesus seemed to be cool with living in the tension. If I was to pick up this guitar over here and play you a tune, which I can do, by the way, but that's just another story. Uh, Not a very good one, but anyway. Um, Did you know that music, I can only get music out of that guitar if the strings have tension on them. You remove the tension, you take away the music. You remove the tension, you take away the power. If you try to reduce the tension so that you feel better about life, so that you've got some clarity, so that everything is black and white. You know the problem, you know, you know it takes no wisdom to live in black and white. Any dummy can live in black and white. It takes wisdom to live in the gray. That's where wisdom exists. 
eh, what's the right thing here? I don't know what to do. God help me. God show me. I wish this was black and white. I wish, hey, I've got to tell you, the further we go in life, the more we realize, the less we actually are clear about black and white. Because <laughs> that's the tension that Jesus lived in. That's the tension that he showed. And that is the dilemma of grace and of truth. He lifts the standard, but he deepens the grace. I'm going to take quickly that story of the woman caught in adultery and juxtaposition it against the story from the book of Daniel and, and make a few quick observations and then we're done. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, um, the story of Daniel continues in chapter 4 and verse 4 and it says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was home in my palace, contented and and prosperous. Now, that's the opposite of the woman caught in adultery, right? The woman caught in adultery is neither contented nor prosperous. She is completely and utterly full of self-alarm. Okay, my, well, my life is over. I have no status. There, I, have, I have no standing in this Jewish community. Now, this Babylonian community, this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, has all the standing in the world. He is the king. I mean, if he calls night, day, and day, night, it has to be deemed as so. This is the most powerful individual in the world. And there he is in his palace, contented, just enjoying his incredible world. And he has this dream. And in this dream, there's this majestic tree. His branches reach to the sky. All kinds of fruit and life come from this tree. But then this tree is cut down and he has this dream and it causes him incredible disturbance. He's disturbed about what he sees. And, and, he's, and so he, who can help me? Who can help me? He's looking for someone to solve the problem. Who can solve the problem? Who can solve the problem? And the world is looking for someone who can solve its problems. And he comes across Daniel. He, he knows Daniel can help me. So he says, Daniel, help me. Daniel, solve my problems, Daniel. Daniel, fix it. And, and Daniel says this, he interprets a dream. He says, you'll be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat the grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass, that's seven years, um, uh, will pass for you until you acknowledge the most high sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone that he wishes. So he tells basically Nebuchadnezzar, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, here's the truth. <laughs> the truth is of your dream, you're going down. And uh, here you have this, this, this person who is a foreigner speaking to the most powerful individual, the king of, of Babylon, who, by the way, if he wanted to take him out, would have just had to have pointed to one of the guards off at his head and there would be nothing more said about it. This, this, that showed incredible, um, incredible uh, courage. He went on and said, this, this, this shows great grace from God. The command to leave a stump uh, of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge the heaven rules. God never digs up the stump. doesn't matter how proudful, it doesn't matter how braggadocious, doesn't matter how, how sinful you become, God always leaves a stump. The roots are always there. There's all, you know, God always brings you back. He always leaves a pathway back. No matter what happens, God will always leave you a way of escape. And the way of escape for Nebuchadnezzar, God was going to leave the stump in the ground. 
And so a couple of verses later in chapter uh, 4, continue verse 30. <laughs> there he is, just enjoying his life. I forgot, forgot about all that. And he made this statement. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built a royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? And it was amazing. Go home and Google it for crying out loud. I mean, you, has anyone ever heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon? One of the, the ancient world's seven great wonders built by this guy. There was an incredible glory around Nebuchadnezzar. And he's completely overwhelmed by it. And one of the great temptations that you and I have is to, is to inside believe that we've arrived at all there is to know. We probably don't sit there and think, wow, what a great person, how, what a great world that I have established there's probably still things in your heart that you're going after, but I wonder in your heart, have you arrived at a point where you think you know whatever, that you know everything? Have you arrived at a point where you've stopped knocking on the door, asking, is there more? What, 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 what um, paradigms that I currently have that have to be ripped up and thrown away so I get a whole new paradigm to move into something fresh? Am I stuck in yesterday's thinking because I've concluded I've arrived? Or am I still that pilgrim on, on, on the, the, the progress forward, knocking on the door of my heart saying, is there more? What, what, what more is there? And pursuing after what I don't have. I've, I've said many times throughout this series that Babylon is more of a mindset than it is a location. And it always equals confusion from the Tower of Babel where the word is taken, where man tried to lift himself up to the standard of God and the end result was confusion and always is. And Nebuchadnezzar is about to enter into that same confusion. And Nebuchadnezzar is about to enter into seven years of confusion. And we have a society today, the selfish society, completely obsessed with self. We've never had a society so self-obsessed or so confused. And that, that, that is just the way it works. That's uh, not by chance. In the end of times, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, he says, and my sanity was restored. Sanity is restored when humility comes, when he recognizes that I am not the king of the earth, but he is. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His, domin his dominion is, it, is an eternal dominion. His kingdom uh, endures from generation to generation. Basically what he's saying here is this. It's taken seven years of this wilderness experience for Nebuchadnezzar to recognize that he is not the center of his world, but that God is. And when you do that, God ushers you into a place of sanity. He ushers you into a place of order. Your life becomes ordered. Your life becomes a place of peace. There becomes a joy. I'm not talking about happiness because happiness tends to, to depend on outward circumstances. There's a deep joy as you align your spirit with the spirit of eternity. And, and I don't know everybody in this room here today, but if you've never done that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a moment, to acknowledge that God is God and that you are not. And in so doing, you, you reconcile, right? In so doing, you get in step with what is eternal. You, you, you start to, you put the center of the universe where it ought to be, and that's around God. When the center of the universe is around me, it, I end up confused. And it took seven-year journey for um, old Neb to come to that conclusion. I want to make three observations and then we're going to uh, pray and we're done about <clears throat> grace and truth operating through Daniel 
in this environment. And also, we see, the, we see exactly the same with Jesus. Uh, and the first one, and one that I've had to work on, is don't be offended on God's behalf. Don't be offended on God's behalf. Daniel was not offended at Nebuchadnezzar's behavior on God's behalf. Um, <clears throat> have you ever been in a situation where you just thought maybe it's a wedding reception, everyone's drunk and carrying on. You think, oh man, if only there was another Christian here. And you see a Christian and, and they're not drinking either and you go over and you just have some lovely fellowship together. <laughs> you know? It's kind of like, God, get me out of this place. This place is going to hell in a handbasket. This place is full of horrible, whinging, complaining, lust-filled people. I don't want to be a part of it. God, get me out of here. And we can be offended, right, at the world's behavior as if somehow it offends God. Jesus prayed this prayer. He says, my prayer is that, is that you take them not out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, uh, even as I'm not of the world. But how many know salt is no good in the salt shaker? I can remember years ago working at a place, obviously wasn't where I work now, and uh, this particular person who did something in front of me. Now, I don't think they did it necessarily in front of me to you know, make a display to me. I just happened to be there. And I remember just reacting to what they had done with disdain in my heart. <laughs> and it sure showed on my face. My countenance condemned them, and they acknowledged that. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm such a Pharisee. I've just condemned this person for their, you know, was it, what they did was ridiculous, and I'm not even going to go there. Um, but how you respond to sin says a lot about how mature you are in Christ. Uh, if you are offended by other people's behavior on, on God's behalf, you are on a, uh, you're still a long way on your journey. Um, uh, the, the seminal story of the prodigal son the father runs and embraces the prodigal son when he returns he doesn't take a position of offense at what the son had done even though in Jewish law he should have but, but, but Jesus is introducing us to a whole fresh order as we've been uh, studying the Sunday nights uh, a whole fresh way of looking at things where I don't get offended on God's behalf at your behavior Daniel did not take offense uh, at the behavior of these people and block himself, protect himself from them. He was in Babylon, although he was not of the spirit of Babylon. Jesus was in the world, although he was not of the spirit of the world. You and I, we are to be in this world, although not of the spirit of this world. Whether it be of the, the, the anti-spirit, right? The Christ spirit. Uh, not, not the anti-Christ spirit, but the anti-spirit of this world. And that is the spirit of humility, the spirit of service. The spirit of this world is the spirit, is the spirit of the self. It's self-exhortation. It's, it's all about me. It's about putting forward my agenda. It's about people look at me. It's about how I can get my name to be great. But you and I, we're of the, we're of the, the group that want to make the name of Jesus great. So, so don't, don't take offense. Don't cut yourself off because of the behavior of the people you find yourself around that's what not to do one thing to do build bridges of trust with lost people when nebuchadnezzar had a problem he reached out to daniel daniel had built a bridge of trust daniel had proven himself trustworthy now how do you do that let me give you one big thought this is about the people who you trust see i can turn up on time i can always tell you the truth and you still don't trust me did you know that there's more to trust than just being honest. 
because there are honest people in your life that you know that you don't trust because trustworthiness is not just about proven character if you know what i'm saying it's just not about hey you can trust me because i'll tell you the truth and i'll show up when the time is right and i'll do this and i'll do that that's not what that doesn't engender trust i'll tell you what engenders trust and this must be in your heart right because it was in the heart of Christ. I'm suggesting it was in the heart of Daniel. If this is not in your heart, you cannot and will not engender trust. No matter how honest you are, no matter how truthful you are, no, no matter how dependable you are, people will still not trust you. Let me tell you, this, this is the key to trust. The key to trust, I trust the people who have my best at heart. People who, 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 who whose intentions are towards my best future see as a parent what, what what is it as a parent you have for your children you love your children you want what's best for them right when you want what's best for others that's when they trust you that's what engenders trust when people know when you've empathized when you've walked in their shoes you say well i can't do that because i don't agree with them let me tell you uh, one of the signs of, a, of a, an intelligent person is their ability to entertain an idea they don't agree with do i have to say that again <laughs> Or are we just so blind? <laughs> well, one of the signs of intelligence, one of the signs of intellectual humility is being able to entertain an idea that you do not yet agree with. And it's not to say that you will agree with it, but you can entertain it to, to, to you know, figure it out, to, 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 to talk about it. And, and so this, this builds trust. When people think you have their best interests at heart, they open their heart to you. If they think, nah, you're just, you know, you're judging me, you don't want what's best for me, then I cut myself off from you. The key to building bridges is honestly wanting what's best for the people in your world. Honestly, I want what's best for you. I'm not trying to keep you to myself for my good so that it suits me, so that, you know, I, I can get out or that I can advance or that I can make. No, no, no. It's about what's right. It's about what God wants. It's about what's best for you. We've got to take that perspective. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had uh, Ben McCulloch in the church here. Many of you know Ben, and he, he, he had a heart to be a youth pastor. I didn't have any positions vacant. <laughs> Now, I could have come up with all kinds of things to keep him because it was best for me because he's this very talented, great young guy. But it wasn't what's best for him. So I phoned my mate who was looking for a youth pastor and I put the two of them together. But it never happened. You know what I'm saying? Because ultimately, the question is, are we in this for ourselves or are we in this in what's best for others? And sometimes what's best for others is not necessarily what seems the best for you in the time. <laughs> but you think to yourself, well, hang on a minute what am i here for am i here to build my ministry am i here to build my name or am i here to build others and if that is on if you honestly have that perspective on life then you build trust with people so in daniel's heart it was what's best for babylon in fact if you read the book of jeremiah it's all about make make babylon prosper do what's best for babylon do what's best for, for, for Nebuchadnezzar. I know, he's a, <laughs> I know he's a despot, but that's not your problem, Daniel. You didn't make him king. I did, God would have said. You serve him, and I'll deal with the things in due course. And the last thought, <laughs> this is a good one. Don't rescue them from life's journey. <laughs> How many of you have ever done that? 
You know, I said last week, the overarching ethic is what does love require? That's the question. Put that on the end of your nose. Let that be the prism that you see the world. What does love require? You know, sometimes love requires people experiencing pain. That's what love requires. Particularly, here's the thing, particularly if you're feeling the pain as well. See, some people rescue their loved ones because they don't want to feel the pain. That is not love. What does love require? Sometimes people have to come to grips. This was Nebuchadnezzar's journey. Nebuchadnezzar's seven years as a, you know, uh, in the paddock as an animal. If Daniel had gone and got him out of there and, and rescued him from his journey, then he would never arrive at his destination. And sometimes what does love require is tough. Because if you really love the person and you have the means and the ability to rescue them so they don't have to go through the pain and suffering, there's a sense in which that actually helps you, doesn't it? Because you don't want, I don't want, your suffering hurts me. I want to pluck you out of that. And you know, sometimes in the West, we want to pluck people out of a journey that they're going through. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no. You know, you know sometimes people have got to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And you know what can happen? And it does in church life. What's the church doing for them? The church should be doing more. It's not fair. <laughs> you know, I've heard that before. And I'll hear it again. Because wherever there's grace and truth, there'll always be it's not fair. There'll always be. I'd take you back to the foot of the cross and the rich young ruler and take you a thousand places. Sometimes people have got to go through their journey to come to the conclusion that God has for them. And the worst thing that you can do is use your resources and your ability to circumvent the work of the Holy Spirit because that's what love requires. Truth and grace. Grace and truth. Sometimes we don't understand it. Sometimes we want to rail against it. And I do too. I do too. But in the midst of it, we've got to trust God. In the midst of it, we've got to recognize, you know something? Here's, this, is, this, is, this is what I've got to do, right? What I've got to do, I've got to ask, what does love require? And I've got to serve. I can't judge you. You can't judge me. I can't judge your behavior. You can't judge my behavior because you don't know the story. You only have your perspective. So what I have to simply do is take heed to myself. Is my heart right? Am I asking the question, what does love require? And am I praying, God, help me bring about the best interests of the people in my family, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, those that are in my world. Let's bow our heads. We're going to pray. Father, I thank you for everybody uh, in this room this morning who is going to struggle with the dilemma of grace and truth. Lord, who is going to want to rescue people from a, a journey that you've taken them on. And then, Lord, others who are going to turn their back when they should rescue. Lord, I pray as each one of us embraces the tension of grace and truth, recognizes the dilemma, and then lives each day in humility trying to work it out, trying to work it out, trying to work it out. I pray your grace 
and your truth upon us all. Just where heads are bent, our eyes are closed. I do want to ask, I did say earlier, that if you're in this room and you've never given your life to Jesus or you haven't and your sort of life's gone on and, and you haven't walked with him, the best thing you can do is align your life with, with, with the life of eternal, uh, of eternity, eternal life. And you do that by declaring that he is God and I am not. I align myself with the creator of the universe, with the reality of existence. And that is, God is God.